Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us so that your Holy Spirit be with us. Show us what you want us to see from this study in the book of Acts. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 15, we're continuing the what has come to be known as the Council of Jerusalem, the, the solving of the first really big problem of the church. What are you going to do with all these Gentiles? <laughs> um, it started when men went to Antioch, telling them that they had to be circumcised and become Jews. And so uh, Barnabas and Paul and others went back to Jerusalem to get a decision from the disciples on what was happening. We left off after Peter had gone over and said, well, you all know what happened when I went to Cornelius, how Cornelius and and, the, and his whole household became Christians, and the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them, and nobody, including God, made them <laughs> become Jews. And now we're going to continue off with uh, Paul and Barnabas getting ready to speak in verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon has declared, or excuse me, Simon has declared how God did at first, did at the first visit the Gentiles to take out of them a name for his people, a people for his name. I'm having trouble reading. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which are which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. All right. So in verse 12, we have the multitude being quiet and listening to Barnabas and Paul, and they declare or rehearse everything that God had done all through Asia Minor, or Turkey as we call it today. And they're telling them how they got saved, how they, how they got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and all the things that happened. And they're reiterating to the fact that in all those people, they never made any of them become Jews. <laughs> and we, we talked about this. This is a big deal to the church at this point. The, the disciples never came, started with the idea of starting a new religion. And they're accused of that all the time in our day. Well, of course they wanted. They were here to start a new religion. They were never starting a new religion. All they were saying is, we're Jews, the Messiah has come, and we need to, to worship the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, now, they're going to be rejected by the the. the uh, politician side of the Jewish people, but that was all that they were trying to do. They never considered themselves not Jews. 
Now they have a problem. Peter had gone and Cornelius and his, his people had become, had become followers of the Messiah and then had become Jews and God had not declared that they had to become Jews. Paul and Barnabas had gone out and lots of people, lots of Jew, non-Jews had, had become followers of the way. So they are in a predicament at this point. You've got all these people coming into what is, a, in their minds, a, Jew, a Jewish sect, a branch of Judaism. But nobody is making them get circumcised and declare that they are Jews, except for a handful of Pharisees and everybody. And remember, in the first part of this chapter, the Pharisees that had become Christians, they're not Christians yet at this time, but who have become followers of Jesus, were saying, well, if they're going to truly be followers of the Messiah, they need to be Jews. And this is where this whole battle is coming on. And we don't really appreciate it in this day, but it is a big battle. Because, you know, we talked about this. They're being covered by the umbrella of being Jews. The Jews had a special relationship with Rome because of them allowing them to come in and just become vassals. They allowed them to keep their religious beliefs. And so Christianity started under that umbrella that it was Jewish. Because if, if it had just broken straight out and said, we're no longer Jews, right from the beginning, they would have been crushed. Because Rome did, would, did not put up with this idea of a single God <laughs> mentality. They put up with it with the Jews because that was the agreement that they had made. Otherwise, the Jews were going to fight tooth and nail to, to stay as a nation and would have fought to the death. So they, Rome allowed them to keep their, relig their relationship and their religion and their, and their ways. And Christianity comes up underneath that umbrella. And so this is a big deal to them. Like I said, they're not out starting a new religion. And Paul and Barnabas were saying, look at all the miracles that happened. And we don't have all of them, but you know, all the healings that happened, all the people that got saved. They've started several churches. And most of them are not Jewish-based churches. They're Gentile-based churches. And after they get done with all of this story, and it doesn't tell us how long, we get one verse. One verse telling us that they gave them. But we know that it has taken us five chapters <laughs> to get them, get them here to, to Jerusalem. And even that doesn't tell us everything that happened. So they're giving a rehearsal or a testimony of what God has done when they get done in verse 13 and it said when they had held their peace they were done James got up this is James the half-brother of Jesus he is the leader of the church uh, excuse me this can't be James the half-brother of Jesus yeah James James is half-brother of Jesus the other James is the one that died <laughs> uh, he gets up and he says, I've got, I now have a message. You know, he's, he's going he's gonna to give his message on this. And he says, listen to me. And it says, Simeon has declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles and take out of them a people for his name. This is Simon. Excuse me. I keep saying Simeon. Simon. Well, it's still Simeon. Yeah. Uh, Simon Peter. So he's going... We already have dealt with Simon. You know, Simon has told us we, we've accepted the fact that Cornelius got saved and that Cornelius was told to call Peter and Peter was told to go, go to him. Because we already know this. 
We know that Gentiles have been called by God. And this is a big deal for a Jewish person because the Jews thought that all Gentiles were created to go to hell. That was their idea. They weren't called by God, and unless they, can, unless they convert to Judaism, they were, they were headed to hell, and that's what they deserved. God created them to be fuel for hell. So he's going, we already know that God has called the Gentiles. And so he's going, and to take them, out of them a people for his name, and to this agree all uh, agree the words of the prophet as it is written. And now he's going to quote Amos chapter 9 verses 11 through 12. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and I will build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up. This is the promise of Judaism being raised up. The, the, the people in the temple. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord and that all the Gentiles upon whom the name my name is called, saith the Lord, who does all these things. So he says, not only am I going to elevate the tabernacle, rebuild the tabernacle, I am going to bring Gentiles in. And we've talked about this. As we go through the Old Testament, we say this is where God has said the, the Gentiles were going to come. God has all through the Old Testament, how the Jews ever got this idea that Gentiles were, were automatically dismissed from, the, from God does not match up with the word of God. All right? When we go through the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle and the building of the sacrifices, God kept saying, there is one law for you and for all people. All right? He kept saying that. That was something that was repeated many times in Exodus and Leviticus. There's one law for you and for all people that he made it very clear that any Gentile that wanted to come in and make a sacrifice was supposed to be able to come in and make a sacrifice. And yet we've talked about this. By Jesus' day, they had great big signs saying that any Gentiles beyond the court of the women were going to be executed so that they weren't able to worship. And they had become a very we-only group. Nobody else is going to be part of this group. And... James quotes Amos, and it's kind of interesting because every time we read about the disciples and through the book of Acts, it's the leaders look at them and say, these are ignorant men. <laughs> they quote not just the Pentateuch, they're constantly quoting the prophets, which tells us that they had been very thoroughly taught by Jesus the, the whole word of God, because the prophets were not what the average Jew studied. We think of the Jews studying the Old Testament. Well, they would study the first five books, the Pentateuch. The, the five books of Moses was all they really cared about. That was, those were the important books. The rest of the books were for the scholars, for the, uh, for the rabbis to, to be studying. Uh, we would say in our day for the pastor to study. Nobody else really cared about the prophets. <laughs> and the disciples are quoting from the prophets all the time. They, they know the word of God. They had been studying. And Jesus, obviously, Jesus taught them because these were not what they would have learned in Sabbath school. When they learned how to read, they learned how to read the Pentateuch. And we've talked about this. In the synagogue, they had a schedule that they read the, the five books of Moses every year. 
They read through the prophets over a period of five to seven years. So the rest of the, they read the first five books and the other 34 books they would spend seven years to get through. Not too bad, but it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal to them. But the Pentateuch was the big deal. But even in the Pentateuch, it said that the Gentiles could worship God. And here's what, here's, here is the thing that James is quoting. He's quoting from Amos. And he's going, God said he was going to call the Jews. So he's, he's taking an Old Testament verse and saying, God has called them. And then in verse 18, he says, Known unto God are all the works, all his works, from the beginning of the world. He's going, God's omniscience knew what was going to happen. And this is something that is beautiful for us to always remember. And I always mention this. God is never surprised by anything that happens. And this is what James is telling them. You know, somehow God said he's going to call the people. We've been, we've been trained that the Gentiles don't come to God, but God said the Gentiles would be his. And God knew that this was going to happen. <laughs> All right? And this is the beauty of it. We need to be very careful when we look at something and try to say that God is surprised or we, we you know, usually it's more we're surprised by something that God does. Um, I had a whole list of verses I wanted to mention. I'm going to mention them from the, from the quote from Amos. He said that Gentiles would come. There's a whole bunch of other verses that say Gentiles would come. Uh, Genesis uh, 12, 1 through 3 is when Abraham was told that all nations would be blessed by him and his people. Isaiah 42, 6 said that there would be a light to the Gentiles. All right. Isaiah 60, verse 4 said that the Gentiles would know God. All right. Uh, the whole book of Jonah is about the Ninevites <laughs> converting to God. And they were not made to become Jews. They just repented. Um, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: 27, the whole earth shall know. <laughs> all right? And the, Gen the Jews kind of go, well, we're scattered all over the earth, so the whole earth knows. But no, this, this verse is very clearly, the whole earth is going to know God. Isaiah 49, 6 says, salvation will go to the ends of the earth. Um, Zechariah 2.11 many nations will join to God uh, Malachi 1.11 other nations offer to God so there, there's lots and lots of verses that said in the Old Testament and that's not an exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination uh, but I just wanted to bring this out this is stuff that the Jews should have known that all nations would come to God but they had been blinded because of their understanding of the scriptures and the way that they had been taught, they were blinded. And this is something even we as Christians have to be careful of. That we don't get blinded by what we think we know about the scriptures. And this is something very important. Why did the, Gen why did the Jews not recognize Jesus as Messiah? Because they had only one picture of Jesus as Messiah, uh, as the Messiah coming would be to make Israel the, the center of all, all the world. They totally eliminated anything that had to do with the suffering Messiah they ignored because it didn't make sense to them. The disciples had the same problem. 
they were thinking that Jesus was coming to establish a kingdom. And even though all through his conversations he says, I'm going to go die, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, and the closer he got to the cross, the more he told them this, it did not compute in their minds because it was not, the Messiah didn't come to die in their mind. Now they understood it after the fact and the Holy Spirit started revealing all the different verses and, and Jesus spent the 40 days showing them all the scriptures that said that he would die and be resurrected and that he would come. But we need to be very careful about how we ignore things that don't make sense to us or mistreat them in many cases. And this is something right now that as we're looking at our world caving in and being, being a disaster possibly, how much do we go through before we're taken out in the rapture? This has been a, a starting of a new debate amongst everybody. How soon do we leave and how much do we have to go through? And we need to be prepared, and, I, and it's been on my heart, and I'm noticing it more and more on the radio channels that I'm listening to, to be on, prepared for persecution here in America. I am sure that it's coming. How bad will it get before we're taken? I don't know. The rest of the world is under persecution all, all the time, and Christians are dying all the time, so it's a surprise that America has had such freedom of, of religion. And it has fallen apart. Read the newspapers. Listen to the, listen to the you know, TV broadcasts and everything. We are listed as enemies of the state. You know, because we won't agree with all the stuff they want to do. And it's very interesting to see. And the more that we're identified as enemy, the more likely we are to face persecution. And we need to be ready for what's coming. How far is it going to go? I don't know. How, how far will we go into this persecution before the, before the rapture? I don't know, but we need to have our hearts ready. Because if we're not prepared and these trials come, it will be easy to reject God because of our blinders on our eyes. And this is where they're at right now. They're, they're dealing with the blinders on their eyes that Gentiles are coming into the kingdom. And, and James is coming up with the right decision. They've, they've been dealing with it. They've been dealing with it since, since Peter went to see Cornelius. They actually dealt with it when Jesus would talk to Samaritans and everybody else under the sun. Syrophoenician woman that he healed, the, the Samaritans, the Gadareans that he, that he brought into the kingdom. So they've already had Jesus laying it up. Now they're understanding some of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, and they're beginning to understand it. And, and James is saying, God knew that this was going to happen. God's omniscience is wonderful. You know, when things happen, he, he has a plan. He has a plan for everything that's going to happen, even when we cause the problem. All right? Romans 8.28 does not say all things work together for good as long as you didn't cause the problem. That's not what it says. It says all things work together for good. And this is the beauty of that. No matter how bad things get, even if I totally messed up everything and caused all the big problems, God has a plan that will be for good. Now, I might not like the plan that is for, for good, and it's not necessarily for my good, 
but God knew what I was going to do. He already has a plan in place for, for fixing whatever I've done and helping everybody out in the process. And he brought this problem into the church to see what's going to happen. And verse 19 says, Therefore, my sentence is, now this is kind of my judgment, and this is his judgment, all right? He is not claiming that this is God's judgment. This is James's judgment, probably in consultation with the other disciples at this point, but he, he as the head of the church at this time, is saying, this is what I have decided, all right? Because we're going to find out that all that he decided is not necessarily what God decided, <laughs> His first statement is that we trouble not them which are from among the Gentiles that are turned to God. All right? Don't make life difficult for them. They're not, they're not there to follow the same rules that the Jews are. And he's going to say in verse 20, but that we write to them. All right? That we trouble not so to turn to God but that we write to them that they abstain from the pollution of idols, from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. All right. So he gives them a couple rules. Now, when he says not trouble them, he's, not, he's saying we're not putting them under all the 613 laws of Moses. And in another place, they said, well, we can't even keep them. So why would we put them under it? All right. And this is what grace is about. Grace is about the fact that we can't keep the law of God. And because we can't keep his law, God says it's all grace. The law is not bad. The law, as we've talked so many times, is based upon God's character. The more we draw close to him and he sanctifies us, the more we will be within his character and be obedient to the law. But not because we're doing it to please God or get, get access to heaven or any of those other things. It is because we've drawn close to him. And the closer we become to him, what we worship, we become like. So when I worship God and I fellowship with God, I become like him. Now, in the Proverbs, the proverb that we have out there, birds of a feather hang together or, or you know, and, and we become like those we, you know, we spend time with. When we spend time with God, we will become like him. Will we become exactly like him? Absolutely not. But the more I spend time with God, the more my life becomes like his. I learn to love better. I learn to have more mercy. I learn to have more grace. I learn to have more, more uh, be like him. And so he says... We're not going to trouble them, but we're going to write to them. We're going to put it in writing. Now remember, what started this were certain people coming for Jerusalem saying that they represented the church and that, they had, that these guys had to become Jews, had to be circumcised, had to be following the 613 laws of Moses. And when they first, when they first showed up there, you know, the disciples said, we didn't send anybody up there to give you this message. So they have decided we're going to write these instructions to them. We're going to put it in writing what we are saying. His first one is they abstain from the pollution of idols. 
This isn't just worshiping of idols. This was the whole idea that Paul is going to talk about later, eating meat offered to idols. So James and the disciples said, don't do that. Now, this is why I'm saying this is James and the disciples saying this. This is not God speaking at this point, because Paul later on to the Corinthians church is going to tell them, it's not a problem. If you have, no, if you have the liberty to eat meat offered to the idol, all it was was a hunk of rock or a hunk of gold. It's no big deal. But if you have a problem eating this food because somehow you think that idol was something more than just a, just a hunk of wood or, or a hunk of gold or whatever, because then don't eat. But from the Jewish perspective that James and the disciples are coming from, they say, don't eat that meat. It's profane. And that meat will pollute you. So that's the first thing. And this is why I'm saying this is from, this isn't God speaking from, you know, through them. This is just their decision. And one of the things this leads me to, and you all know, I, I don't mind commentary so much, but I, I don't want us to put our entire faith in what a commentary says. I don't want to put our faith in some, what some teacher that we like on the radio or, or even what I say. Don't put your faith in what I say. Study. Get to know what God says. Make your own decisions. These are not God's decisions that they're given, as it tells us later on, you know, as we learn. The second thing they were told is, or from fornication, which the word here is actually pornania, which we get pornography, any sexual uh, uh, sin is what they're referring to. So they're saying, don't eat meat offered to idols. Don't commit sexual sins. Now that one is good. That one is from God. All through the Old Testament and new, you know, all through the rules, God says, keep yourself pure sexually. So this one is definitely one that is, is good. <laughs> then he goes, from things strangled and from blood. All right. This was part of the Jewish laws again. So the only thing in here that there we have that is absolutely true that we kept away from is the fornications, the, the, the sexual sins. Now, when they were speaking of blood, we find it, well, let's start, anything strangled meant that there wasn't bled out. So the life of the body is in the blood. God told the Jews that they were to drain anything they, they consumed of, of its blood, and they were to bury the blood unless it was for an animal for sacrifice, but they were to bury the blood, they were to pour the, pour the blood on the ground and then cover it or in the Old Testament. Uh, so the idea of get rid of the blood. Now, this actually is done in our day and age. When they, when they kill the animals, they drain the blood. And people go, well, what about all the, when the blood that comes out of it when we eat it? Well, that's the red-colored dye they put back into it to make it look like it is still got blood. <laughs> Now, there is some small amount of blood, but nothing, you know, they, the Jews had that idea. Now, the other part of it is to, to abstain from blood. Now, this one is a little more um, intense than what we think of. It wasn't just that they couldn't eat the blood and cook the blood in the, in the animal. This was that blood was used in religious ceremonies, and you drank the, they would drink the blood for the strength of the animal. There was all kinds of strange things that went on it. Huh? In pagan religious ceremonies? Pagan. Pagan. Which is why God had always blocked blood from, from the use, because they would drink the blood for the strength of the animal. They would 
get it for the greatness of it. Uh, this one, as sick as it sounds, is coming back in our world. Is, there's lots of our religious practices that, that are coming back from the pagan world that drink blood. That, that will take the blood. They prefer human blood when possible. But because most nations don't allow them to kill people to get their blood, they will take the blood of animals. This is going on and it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem in our world of people just drinking the animal blood. And like I say, many of them, if they can get hold of it, they want human blood. They still want human sacrifices in a lot of, a lot of rituals. And we, we, you hear about it every once in a while that some group was broken up that had been killing and sacrificing humans because that is what their religion said to do. Witchcraft. Well, witchcraft has that aspect to it, but many of them do. Many of the religions, the false religions do. And this goes all the way back to Babel. Babel with its ziggurat was, had human sacrifices involved in the Tower of Babel. That history tells us, the Bible doesn't tell us, but history tells us that they were having human sacrifices to the 36 gods that made up their pantheon. Uh, Satan has always pushed for killing off God's creation to worship false gods. And this is something that we have to understand. When the world is taking out its frustration, especially on Christians and Jews, is because we worship the one true God and Satan is trying hard to turn all the worship away from God. God led with sacrifices from the very beginning. What was the very first thing he did when Adam and Eve sinned? He met them in the garden and he killed some animals to give them skins and established the, the pattern of the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. The covering. Now it doesn't tell us specifically that God actually killed animals. And it is technically possible that God just said, let there be skins. I don't believe that. I believe God showed them the horror of their, de of their decision. They had already sinned, they knew right from wrong, so now he had to show them the horror of what needed to be done to be covered. They did not, and, and they possibly, there is a school of thought that they did not, that they weren't truly naked in their own eyes because of the righteousness of in light covering. So, it was, so there's a possibility that there wasn't a true nakedness involved. I'm not going to go deep yeah. into that one. Okay, uh, many rabbis taught that, and many Christian commentaries will teach that, and I kind of tend to believe it. So it's like, it's like they were physically naked, but yeah. the righteousness of Christ covered them so that they weren't. But there was also no shame involved or anything else, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's a lot of different things that could happen there. Uh, but they sinned, and God prevented, provided skins of coat, uh, coats of skin. <laughs> now, think about this. And I do believe that God killed the animal because where did they learn to do sacrifice for the covering of their sin would have been that God established this. Before this happened, these animals were under their care. They were friendly. They were friendly. They would have been pets almost in, in our mentality. To cover their sin, a pet had to die. So 
technically, yeah. But now it's a physical. <laughs> but now it's a physical. And it has been that way ever since. Even the Passover lamb was taken out of the flock, brought into the house for four days. You know, to be, to be examined. <laughs> uh, and you know that at least the kids made a pet out of that, you know, out of that animal, uh, if not more. <laughs> now, the, the adults kind of know that this animal's dying in four days. Don't make, you know, they're trying to say don't make a pet out of it. But it's living in the house. And it's probably cute. It's a lamb. Uh, and it's a nice-looking lamb. It's not a muddy, muddy, ugly lamb. It's, you know, so again... Again, it's this idea that God is saying, your sacrifice that you're, for, your, for your sin is something that's personal and close. Because it is his sacrifice was Jesus Christ, as close as you could get, his own son. And for us, one of us. You know, it wasn't God just coming down and saying, I'm totally different from you. I, am, I have become one of you so that I will now die for you. And so there's this whole personal thing. It wasn't just go pick, a, go pick out a, a lamb or you know, just go pick out anything. Now, yes, there were sacrifices, but it was your flocks and everything. So it was still something that more personal than going in. And by Jesus' day, this is where the money changers were really causing a problem with God's picture of the sacrifice. You were taking the best, purest lamb in your, in your possession, and they were telling you, it's not good enough. You have to take one of these good, approved ones. Then as soon as you left, your animal went into the pen. Okay? Uh, so they could give your lamb to somebody else, to, telling them that their lamb wasn't perfect enough, and give them your lamb so that they could then replace that lamb. And they charged you for the, per, for the privilege of selling you the lamb that they rejected from somebody else. Uh, so, but again, that took away from God's picture. You know, you're bringing a lamb to sacrifice. So however long you're walking, you're bringing your sacrifice to the tabernacle. And it's been taken out of the flock. There becomes a personal relationship with that, that animal. And I'm not saying it's a deep relationship, but there's still, you know, uh, it's yours, it's, it's something that has been special to you, you picked it out special. And there's a relationship. If, you know, for anybody who, who likes animals, especially more than me, and, I don't, and I'm not a, opposed to animals, but I don't think of them as family, but I still get attached to it. And when my dog got so old that we had to put, put him down, it was still that we're, killing, we're, we're having our animal killed. All right? And I'm not one that made it, a, you know, that make say it was part of the family, all right? Uh, now, my wife could probably never have done it, you know, because that, the animals become part of her family, you know, part of the family as far as she's concerned. For me, I enjoyed them. I, I, pet, I pet them. I play with them. I, you know, I do all that stuff with them, but they're not, you know, I don't consider them family. But I still did not want to just kill this animal. This is what was happening in, in, the, in the whole of the sacrifice. And all of this comes down to this whole part of blood, the value of blood. God says the blood, the life of the body is in the blood. And we don't fully understand it. We do know that if you lose enough blood, you die. All right? 
and we don't even fully understand how all of that is. We do know, and it's, it's deeper than what, God, than what we understand even by science. The blood has this ability to take the iron in the blood, gets attached to the blood, blood cells, hits the, uh, hits the lungs, and instantly the iron in the, in, the, in the lungs turns to rust so that it can carry the oxygen to the, bo- to the cells, which as soon as it hits the cells, it deoxidizes the metal, <laughs> lets the oxygen out, and attaches carbon dioxide to it and sends it back out again. What an amazing system that God does because we can't unrust things. <laughs> now, it's not totally fully rusted, but, it, but it is, it's the starting process of rust. It's attached to the iron. And it gets to the blood cell, it gets to the cells, and they take that off the, they, they unattach it and attach carbon dioxide to it. It's an amazing system that God has created. And that is how it gets passed. And then it has all the enzymes that carry food and nutrients. So just an amazing system that God has put in our body. And he says the blood transfers all of this oxygen and food to the body. And then enzymes and everything take care of it. It's an amazing study when you do the things down to cellular level. And you study out there. And they're saying all of this, you know. So they give them basically, what was that, four rules they said? Uh, Abstain from pollution of idols, no fornication, nothing strangled, and nothing blood. So they give them four rules to live by. James does. And the disciples. Many have called these the the uh, rules of Noah, you know, because there were rules in Noah's day, and Noah was told you could, you know, after the flood, man was given permission to kill animals and eat meat. Before the flood, there was no permission to eat the animals. Now, I'm not saying that people doing what they were, everything that was right in their own eyes, did not eat eat meat. But it wasn't until after the flood that man was given permission to eat meat. And at that point, it also tells us the fear of man came upon animals after Noah. Noah. So before that, there's the indication that those animals still treated man the same way they did in the garden. That there was not all the violence and everything from the animal kingdom. They were sacrificing. They were, they were killing animals and sacrificing, but there wasn't a fear of man. They were still, yes, even the godly sacrifices were being done. Uh, and who knows what the ungodly were doing with animals. Adam and Eve, and, and we know that they went on to Cain and Abel and uh, different, different sacrifices. And the first thing Noah does when he gets off the boat is offer a sacrifice. So we do know that that was done but they weren't eating them. At that point, they were a burnt offering, and they would just take the entire animal and, and, and burn, the, burn, burn the animal. But after the flood, man was given permission to consume the animals, and Noah was told the same thing, you cannot eat the blood. So they're giving the rules kind of that, they, that the rabbis say belong to the Noahic. This also tells us these guys are very knowledgeable in the laws of Judaism. They are not just ignorant fishermen that everybody wants to try to make them out to be. And you, you think about this. The Zebedee brothers uh, came from a family that had a 
fishing fleet. Okay, they weren't just one family of fishermen. They had an entire family of fishermen plus people that they hired. So when the, when the two brothers left their dad, it wasn't like he was abandoned and had no, no workers. Uh, there is a market in Jerusalem that was the Zebedee fish market. All right, so they were sending their fish from Galilee all the way to, to Jerusalem to market the fish, which is why most people believe that John knew the high priest and his family, that he was probably one of the runners for the, and delivery boys for the Zebedee fish company when they would bring fish down. Uh, so this was, their family was not a poor, fam, poor fishing family. All right, these guys had money, they were in charge, they would have been trained to handle the books and make contacts and, and do all of this. Uh, all of these guys, you know, these fishermen were businessmen. And most of them seemed to be successful businessmen. Uh, so they weren't just nobodies. Uh, Levi is a tax collector. He would have been able to keep records really well. And it's kind of an amazing thing that when you see the Zebedee brothers, train, trained businessmen, you know, Peter, who seems to know, know what he's doing, you've got Levi, a tax collector, and who do they put in charge of the, of the money purse is Judas Iscariot. And it's very clear to us that Judas Iscariot was considered a good, good person until he betrayed Jesus. And even at the, even at the, uh, at the Lord's Supper, they're going, and he goes, one of you is going to betray me, and they all go, you know, who, who is it? And, and, they, and they all go, is it me? Nobody pointed, nobody pointed to Judas Iscariot and say, yeah, that, that scoundrel over there, he, he's going to be the one that does it. And, and even when he took off to do it, Nobody, nobody even said, well, you know, wow. He, you, know, he, you know, they assumed that he was going off to buy more stuff or something. Who knows what they thought? Whoever dips, with, dips the sup in with me at the same time. So. And they still didn't. That tells you how, how respected he was amongst the 12 disciples. You know, that he was just not suspected at all of being able to do this. But, you know, this happens a lot. How many times do we hear or see somebody that you would never expect? Well, it even says when the devil came into him. Yeah. You know, it's like he was okay until the devil showed up. Well, he knew what he was doing even before that started, but he'd already, he'd already been approached for, <laughs> for the offer uh, because he's been betrayed that night. But the devil was able to come into him and fill, fill his heart, you know. But he was already in that whole stage of he's causing trouble. Yeah, the, door open the door was already open. Now, we need to understand, and as we look at people, and this is why it's a dangerous place to put anybody up on a pedestal. Because anybody in, in the church is capable of falling, you know. Now, Judas Iscariot could have repented and been brought back in. Peter was brought back in after having denied Jesus. Now, uh, Judas Iscariot could have been forgiven if he had just been willing to repent. All right? Uh, And we see it all the time. People fall. And if they repent, 
they will be restored because it's all by grace. You know, but it is hard. If you've been embarrassed, it's hard to come back. It's hard to come back. You, know, you were the leader of a church and you got into an adulterous affair you know, and everybody in the church knows of your affair. Yeah, I don't know if you're well enough known, it's even hard to do that. There are several guys that have been televangelists and everything where everybody knows who they are and that they fell. And Satan loves to do that to people because it destroys you. But even more than that, it destroys others. Because there are people that, that don't do what they're supposed to. They make, they make an idol out of their leaders of the church or individuals of the church that, are, that they consider leaders, and it hurts them when they fall. And it also blackens the eye of Christianity and, and the world. How many people have been hurt when they see Christians being hypocrites? And, you know, they have too high... The problem is the world has too high a standard of us. We're supposed to be perfect in their eyes. The other side of the coin is we have too low a standard for ourselves in many cases. And it's all worked down to grace. I've got grace, so why, don't, why am I worried about it? And Paul said, you know, grace is not a license to sin. He said, should I go out and sin that grace abounds? He goes, God forbid. You know, we are supposed to be sanctified and be walking closer and closer to God so that when the world looks on us, they see a different lifestyle. Now, we're not going to be perfect in any way, shape, or form. We're never going to be perfect, and the world expects us to be perfect, and they're going to look for any flaw to give them an excuse in their own mind for not following God. And that's all it really is. And we've all done it at some point in our life where we'll blame somebody else. Well, if somebody hadn't done such and such, or they hadn't done this example, or if they had just loved me more and made phone calls and, and pulled me out, now, in many, many places, maybe, yes, what they're saying is probably true. But it is not the excuse for, us to, uh, for, for them to fall away. Cain blamed his brother. But it was his envy that his brother was accepted, and he wasn't that brought him to kill his brother. Uh, and we see this over and over again. You know, Joseph's brothers got irritated with him because God gave him a gift. Now, Joseph was a little arrogant, uh, you know, as well. You know, hey, guys, let me tell you about my I have no idea that you're not going to like my dream, but you guys are going to bow down to me. Yeah. You know, I don't think he was totally 100% ignorant of what he was saying to them. He needed to be humbled, and his time in slavery and in prison humbled him and made him, made him able to be able to be, at the end, being able to say, you did this with evil intentions, but God had a plan for it. You know, probably thinking back to, I had evil intentions too. I was, gonna, I was trying to show off that I was going to be the great. And his father had already set him up because the coat of many colors was the coat that distinguished him from all the others. You know, his dad had already placed him. Think about this. The 11th brother of 12 was placed in charge of the other 10. The, the older brothers all had Joseph as their overseer. Now he's really rubbing it in. It's bad enough that he's in the family overseer. And now he's saying, uh, by the way, guys, you're going to bow down to me. He wasn't, he wasn't totally 
pure in all of what he was doing, but it does not excuse what they did. And this is the point that is made all through the scriptures. Just because we can justify what we did in our own mind does not mean that God is going to justify it. Well, you know, God, if they hadn't smacked me, I wouldn't have beat them to death. <laughs> yeah, uh, and God says, no, that's still murder. <laughs> uh, even though you lost your temper or whatever it did, that, you, know, you, you still did wrong. And this is very important for us to be able to understand that we are not to fall into these things and be into all these things. And then he goes, For Moses of old hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So every Saturday, Moses was read in the synagogues. All right? The Pentateuch, the, five, the first five books of... So the Pentateuch, the, the books of Moses, uh, when they say Moses, it's the first five books, or if they say the law, it's the first five books. So we have different ways that we identify the first five books in the, in the scriptures. The rest of the books, whether they're history or not, are called the prophets. Now we break it up to the Pentateuch, history books, poetry books, and the prophets. But for the Jews, it's the law and the prophets. All right? Or the Pentateuch and the prophets. Or Moses and the prophets. All right? So everything else, the other books of the Old Testament, the other 34 books are all called the prophets. <laughs> and they all don't have a whole lot of things. Now, the book of Psalms was their songbook. They would sing those songs in the, in, the, in the tabernacle. So that would be the only thing that would not be counted as either the law or the prophets because that was what they sang. Uh, for them, it would be their hymnal. Uh, and very powerful hymnal <laughs> that they had. He says, Moses is read every Sabbath day. We need to be paying attention to this. And he's saying... All of these things are what we're going to do. We're going to keep it simple for them. We are not making them get dis become circumcised. We're not become making them become uh, Jews and putting them under the law. Because they understood that this was by grace that God was saving them. And we've talked about grace at various points during this, this time. They're going, it's all by grace. So we are not going to put all of these rules upon them that we have to follow. And I can't, and it's not either later in this one or not, but the various places says all these laws we couldn't keep anyway. So, and this is why he said, we're not going to trouble them with all the laws that we, that we can't keep anyway. They've come to God. They know they need God. It's all by Jesus Christ. So we're just going to say, do a few simple things. And the only one out of their four things that they did that really is going to be stuck is abstain from fornication or all sexual sin. In this case, it's pornonia, all sexual sin, which would be better than... But we have this whole process that they... The de declaration that they are making is we are going to ask them to follow God in simplicity and accept that God knows who's he's, who he's accepting. And again, this is now going to be the first real break of the church from the Jewish belief system. And it's not a complete break at this point, but it's the first little crack in, the, in it. 
They're still not thinking they're starting a new religion. They're, they're, they're still thinking they're following the Messiah. But they're making a real decision because you'll note that it is the disciples making this decision. They haven't gone to the temple to get the Sanhedrin to make a decision. Sanhedrin doesn't like them, so they would not make a good decision. If, they, if the Sanhedrin was making this decision, these guys were going to be Jews. They would agree with the Pharisees. You, they have to get circumcised. They have to follow all the rules. So they have not gone to the Sanhedrin. So this is the first severance of what's going to become Christianity from Judaism. It's still called the way at this point, but it is the first little crack in the in this saying we're going to be separated. All right, and again, huge deal. These are Jewish men that are making this decision that they're going to because God is calling Gentiles and blessing them as Gentiles before they got before they became circumcised before they became Jews and God had blessed them and did everything that he had did to them which told them that God is not respecting them or expecting them to become Jews. And this is a huge deal. This is why it's called the Council of Jerusalem. It's a huge deal. This is the first break from Judaism that comes along in the, in the process. And this is why we see they're not asking them to worship on Saturday. They're not asking them to go, go out for sacrifices. They're not telling them to follow Jewish holidays. All of these things that are now becoming part of many groups out there that are now pushing for the Messianic movement, become Jews. This was already dealt with here. Very clearly dealt with here. Now, is there anything wrong with following the Jewish, Jewish things? Not necessarily, but why put yourself under the laws that you can't keep to, to, to bind yourself up? And this is my problem with it. I am one that I actually believe Saturday. The only problem that I have when I see people, groups that go and worship on Saturday, they bind themselves up. If that law is so important that you have to meet on Saturday, all the other laws become pushed on you. And all of a sudden, you're starting to follow the feasts and all these other things. And there's nothing wrong with it. But if I'm starting to bind myself back under the law, where's grace? Where's grace? And the problem I see in most of those Messianic movements is grace gets pushed aside and the law gets raised up. Now, grace isn't totally pushed away on them, but you watch the rules and the laws start being added on. Because if you start saying this law is so important, it must be <laughs> obeyed above all other laws, above all other grace, Eventually, it becomes law upon law upon law upon law. Now, now I understand murder is bad. It goes all the way back before the law. Fornication and adultery is bad. It goes all the way back before the law. There are certain things that God says, yes, these go back. And these are intrinsic to you. You know they're wrong. Don't do them. And there are certain things that we can say are very clear. Do not do. There are other things that are Okay, if I want to bind myself by law, that's, that's my business. I can bind myself by law and I can lose the freedom and liberty that God has given me. And that's what Paul is going to say to the Corinthian church. You have 
freedom and liberty to do anything. But don't hurt another. If your laws become that important, are you not just worship laws? You're just raising the law to above what God has said. Because I'm now putting in, here's my checklist. I kept this, I kept this, I kept this, I kept this, I kept this. And you might be able to find them in the Bible. You might find your checklist in the Bible. Most checklists aren't in the Bible, but you could find your checklist in the Bible and say, well, it says, read, it says meditate on the scripture. It says read your scripture. It says sing songs unto yourself. It says pray. I can find all these verses and I can make my little checklist. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. But once you start that, if you really want to follow the checklist, then you need to do, just as the Jews, you need to find all 613 laws and start checking them all off every single day. And, and don't miss a single one of them at all. Because once you miss one, you're, you're guilty of all. This is why we cannot even begin to look at the law as my way of salvation. It is by grace. The law proves to me that I cannot earn my salvation. And very important for us to be able to keep looking at that. God, thank you that I can't that I can't keep this. Thank you for your grace. And the more, and this is the purpose of the law, to show us that we need grace. And we cannot be expected in, in, to obey. And yet, as human beings, we like to have our own little checklist. And what, and what do we pick to be on our checklist? Whatever we can do. <laughs> but so, so what do we pick for our checklist? Well, I read my Bible every day. Yeah. I, I, say, I say a couple prayers every day. I don't, I don't commit physical adultery. <laughs> and we put together our little checklist of things that we can do and think that we're the greatest things in sliced bread and that God is so, so happy to have us because we keep our list. He loves us and he paid for us. And he sees us differently than we see ourselves. And this is the beauty of what he does for us. He is the one that does everything for us. And because of that and his grace... We are accepted. This blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness were accepted. All by grace. And the more we understand grace, the better off we're going to be in our relationship with God personally and with our corporate relationship with other members of the church because of grace. Once I understand his grace for me, I should apply his grace to others. Because I know what grace, what I deserve. And therefore, I should give it to others. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. But again, the more I understand his grace, the more I am willing to give grace to others. The more I understand who I am in Christ, and especially who I am without Christ, the more I am going to be willing to give grace and mercy to others. Now, it takes time to learn it. It's not something that you just walk out and immediately start giving to people. But it is the mark of Christians. We're told in the scriptures, they will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. The sad thing is, too many Christians have no love one for another. Now, does that mean they're not disciples? I'm not going to go that far. Jesus' indication is that they're not his disciples if they're not showing love. So we need to be careful about how we live our life. And we live our life by being crucified in the flesh so that God can be raised up in our life and that he can be exalted 
and be shine forth. And he lives as the light in our life that now draws the world to that light. And it's tough. It really is a tough thing to do. But the more we understand God's grace, the better off we are. And this is why I said, you know, from the very beginning of this chapter, grace is the theme of this chapter. And understanding grace is so important. Getting everything that we don't deserve. And that's all the good that we don't deserve. And as I've said, it's the acronym, grace has a great acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay, but say you think something bad has happened to us, is that also God's grace? Possibly. God's promises that all things work together for good. So when I, when I see something and I think of it as bad, God has something gracious in it in the long run. You look at Job. When the period of time that we have about Job in, his, in the book is hard for us to look at and say, that was God's grace. But it really was his grace. Well, that's it, because we, we think that God's grace is only the good thing. What we perceive as good. He's teaching Job that your doctrine is not good. Job was a prosperity gospel person. I did good, I got stuff. And the more good I do, the more, the more stuff I get. Because, because I am earning my place with God. And Satan said, well, if you take it away from him, he's going to reject you. And he did not react the way to the you know, av- average prosperity gospel. He did struggle. You know, I've lost everything. And you look closely at everything that he said. Every time his friends or disciples, because most people believe that they, he had taught them. And now they're coming to comfort, him, comfort their teacher. Because from their perspective, they, they were prosperity gospel. You don't have anything, then you, des- you really did something really, 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 really bad. Why don't you just admit and confess so that you can be forgiven? Because from their gospel that, they, that he taught, and because all of his answers are, basically it breaks down to, in very poetic language, I know what you say is true, but... And I know that you're saying true that you know that you, you don't you know, good people don't suffer like this. So God was teaching him, which is grace. And then what did he get at the end? He got double everything that he lost, because God says now you now you're ready to receive the prosperity and know that it is a gracious gift to you, not something that you earned. So yes, sometimes God's, when God allows bad to happen to us, or what we perceive as bad, it is to show us or teach us something about him. And many times it is just to teach us that our whole dependence is on him. God, I had a job. I was making a million dollars a year, and you took it away from me. And God says, yes, because you were depending on your job, not me. Well, that's what I keep trying to tell people. It's our judgment if it's good or bad. It's not God. God's judgment is it's good. And even if, it, even if it's the worst case possible and we just have nothing but bad happen to us our entire life and we stay faithful to God and we're his child, we are going to be so rewarded in heaven for going through all of that. So still in the long run, it was good. 
Now, I'm talking long run. It means nothing in this life was good. I, I was homeless. I was destitute. I was barely, barely being kept enough food to be alive, barely giving shelter enough to stay, stay healthy. And God says, yeah, but look at the rewards in heaven. And that was what Paul said. These light afflictions are nothing compared to the glories of heaven. And this is, the, this is the deal that we have. God's grace is so much more than we ever, ever understood. His grace is to teach, sometimes to teach us hard lessons. It was his grace to send Joseph into slavery and prison for 13 years. So that he could rescue his brothers and his family from a starva- starving for seven years. Well, that makes a whole different aspect of my history then. <laughs> well, it's the same for everything. If people can really understand, God means it for good. Whatever bad that we think has been happening in our life, God has a plan. And his grace comes out and says, I have a reason for this to have happened. And this is the beauty. And Joseph is one of those great characters. 17 years. In prison for, he didn't do it. You know, for doing nothing. Well, little arrogance got him in in as a slave, and then he was in prison under false charges. So that he would be in the right place to meet the butcher and the chief and the butler, so that he would be able to meet them, so that the butler would forget to give Pharaoh the message until the right time to bring him out. And Joseph might have been getting a little prideful again because he was way up there in the household. Yeah, no, who knows? Who knows what happened? Who knows what happened on that? But he did the right thing in rejecting. So he did have a huge amount of pride that had to be broken before that he could be made second in charge of. Because if his pride hadn't been broken before he met his brothers, what would have happened to his brothers as soon as he saw them? They they would have been in jail, not to be released, not to be a test. They would have just been, you know. Uh, eliminated. He's now got the power to eliminate them for having sold him, so his pride had to be broken. And again, his pride was so broken, what could he have done when he came out of jail? Uh, Mr. Potiphar, I want you here tomorrow. Uh, Guess who's now going to jail? Uh, Mrs. Potiphar, uh, you're going to to the woman's jail too, you know, it's, uh, you know, but his pride had been broken and he saw he was able to see it as God working on his life. You get many of the prophets that were executed and put in prison over and over again. Uh, Jeremiah, every time he was preaching, uh, was sent by God to preach, was sent into prison or or into cisterns. If we truly believe Romans 8.28 is true, then we need to remember. And I can't remember which which uh, evangelist it was that, that would preach it, and he, he believed it, and his wife kept having to remind him when he would gripe. <laughs> Romans 8.28 has not been taken out of the Bible. Yeah. You know, I can't remember who it was I read, but his wife kept coming back to him and saying, Romans 8.28 has not been removed from the Bible. Uh, you know, so she was good. <laughs> but this is where we're at. The more we remember that God has a plan, and it is a good plan long-term. Now, we may not understand it. And there are many times I've told God, God, I do not understand how this can be made, that good is going to come out of this. 
And this is one of the places that I have learned very clearly that the word my is not in that verse. All things do not work together for my good. Now, long term, they do. When I get to heaven, all that I've gone through will be for my good and for the rewards that I get in heaven. But while I'm walking on this world, all things work together for good in this world as well, but not necessarily for my good. And this is very much something we have to pay attention to. God has a plan. It is a good plan. I might be Joseph having to suffer for, for 13 years while God is teaching me to be humble enough to not kill my brothers when I see them when I, get, when, I, when I get into power. And actually, it's more than 13 years when he finally meets his brothers because he's raised up. He's in jail for 13 years. He goes seven years of plenty, and it's three years into that that he goes. So he's been 23 years in slavery and in, 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 in rank before he meets his brothers. And by that time, God has said, I'm sure that when they showed up, God says, this is why you're here, to take care of your family. 27 years, uh, 30 years to prep him to be ready to protect his family. Yeah. Which basically is Israel. Which, is his, which becomes the, the nation of Israel. And God took a long time to prepare him for that event. All of this stuff that God does, God's plan is a lot broader than ours. Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. All right, Abraham has one kid. One, one, one kid as far as God's concerned. He has 13 other kids, but uh, one kid. His, his son, I'm going to make you a great nation. Isaac, I'm going to make you a great nation. Isaac gets two whole kids. Jacob, I'm going to make you a great nation. Yeah, Jacob's a brat, yeah. Jacob, Jacob's a, trip, a, a trickster, a huckster, uh, you know, all of that until God finally wrestles with him and, and puts his hip out of socket uh, for the rest of his life. And he, and he gets the first time when he actually gets 12 sons and a daughter. He is the first one to actually see some number of kids that it could actually be a nation, but 13 does not really make a nation. It's not for another 200 plus years when they go into Egypt and they come out. They go in, people counting all the servants and grandkids that go in and leave with three and a half million people. They leave a nation. They're starting to form a, a, a tribe when they go in and they are a nation when they leave. It's kind of funny because while they're enslaved to Egypt, they're basically taken care of so they can... <laughs> can grow. Yeah, so they can grow. But it also has a problem on... They were polluted with their religions and everything of Egypt, which was the whole purpose of the ten plagues, was God showing Egypt primarily that God was stronger than all, than all the Egyptian gods, but also showing Israel that I am stronger than all these gods that you've been, been polluted by. And I don't know if they worshipped them or not, but they were still influenced. You know, and they were probably worshipping them too. I mean, because what's the first thing they do in... And at Mount Sinai, when, they, when Moses is on the hill for too long, they, they, they make a golden calf. Moses was consumed by God, so they, they create a god. And it was one of the great gods of, Israel, of, of uh, Egypt. They worshiped golden calves as well as many other gods. So they were, they were polluted by Egypt. So God was trying to show them as well, I'm stronger than all these gods that you've been, been polluted by. 
God spends most of our life kicking the gods out of our life <laughs> that we worship. Well, we don't bow down to idols in most cases, but we have lots of gods that, uh, that he has to take and get kicked out of our life. And this is a big deal that has to be worked out. We're going to close in prayer because I went way over, way over our normal time. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, teach us to trust you. Teach us to follow your grace and to trust in your grace more and more with every... Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Passing day that we will follow you and seek you in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.